This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Contractor ever tell you the price of something and it sounds so high you think, "Eh, maybe I'll try it myself. Some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. Good morning. This is Southern Remedy from MPB Think Radio, and I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. And this is Southern Remedy, your program where you can call in with any type of medical question that you might have. Maybe it's a new symptom. Maybe it's something that just keeps hurting you somewhere. If you want to get some answers, uh, we'll try to answer those questions uh, over the air. And uh, if we can, don't have all the information to make those sometimes, but we can try to point you in the right direction. And if you uh, can't listen to us live, um, we're every Wednesday at 11 here, um, or and that's um, also for the rest of our Southern Remedy lineup. It's 11 uh, on the other days of the week. But if you can't listen to us then, uh, you can always go and uh, download us on your favorite podcasting app. Just search for Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio, and uh, you can listen to us at your leisure. Or maybe you want to listen to a program and say, you know what? Hey, John, I've got this. Uh, I heard this on the radio. Maybe uh, you ought to check it out. You can go and uh, and download that and uh, point them in that direction for that information. Hope everybody's having a great morning today who's listening live. And uh, it's a little chilly, of course, outside. I don't know about you, but when that wind blow th- blew through the central Mississippi yesterday, um, I'm guessing it was probably most of the state, uh, if not the upper part of the state. It was frigid, and I, it was really weird because it felt like it was about 20 degrees to me. Um, of course, I'm a native Southerner, so you know uh, that that that's uh, 40 is really frigid. But it was only in the mid 40s, so it uh, that wind chill was really whipping it. Uh, speaking of, uh, please please go ahead and make some plans for next week. Um, forecast looks bleak, uh, and we are not accustomed here in the South to getting uh, 20 degree uh, you know uh, shifts in. Uh, in in the temperature quickly and it looks like we're going to have some highs in the 20s lows in the teens or maybe even lower than that so that's quite a bit colder than most of us are used to and most of the infrastructure is used to in the state so keep that in mind wrap those pipes if that applies to you Uh, Make sure that you're doing everything safely. We have a lot of heater fires because those heaters are not uh, uh, secured in a way and have a lot of flammable material around them. So please be careful with that. Um, All you guys out there like myself who don't like reading directions, please read those directions on those heaters if you haven't gotten them out and uh, stay safe. But uh, do plan because it's going to get cold Monday, Tuesday, I think Monday night and uh, most of the week next week after that. So uh, please uh, plan appropriately. If you have some medical conditions, it could be affected by that. Certainly asthma is one or COPD. Your breathing, uh, particularly with temperature changes, can sometimes uh, change. Uh, That's another thing to plan for uh, and make sure that you have adequate uh, protection in the cold. So just uh, something to think about. And and I'm all about planning. So that's, uh, that's something you can plan for next week.
You know, Mississippi, unfortunately, leads the nation in a number of things, and usually that's not a good thing uh, from from a health perspective. Occasionally, we do pretty good. We do pretty good with vaccination rates and that kind of thing. But uh, one right now that we're sort of lagging behind is three different respiratory illnesses that tend to are spiking right now across the nation, and uh, we've got some of the highest rates of those, and that is flu, RSV, and of course, COVID. And uh, particularly for flu, uh, getting the flu vaccine can reduce your complications from the flu. And that's a great way to protect yourself. You cannot get the flu from the vaccine. It is a is not a live virus in there. Those used to have some options like that that you could get. Not anymore. Uh, very effective in preventing, uh, particularly in higher risk individuals. So the young, the old and the immunocompromised Um those individuals are most at risk, actually, for all three of those conditions. We do have vaccines for both COVID that are very effective and also per, uh, reducing the severity, and for RSV, that's respiratory syncytial virus. And that's one that we've known about for a long time in kids. We're starting to see the effects of that in adults. Um, I'll say if I had to choose, uh, that one is one that's an optional one, RSV, and that's just because of the data that we have out now. We know that it reduces the ability of somebody to contract RSV as an adult, but we don't know yet what the impact of that's going to be. So just full clarity, you know, people claim all the time, you're just advocating vaccines without all the information. Nope, not, not, not here. Uh, so we don't have the complete picture on that yet. That study is ongoing. Hopefully in the next year or so, we'll see how effective those RSV vaccines are at preventing the major complications, which would be hospitalization and death. But they do prevent you from getting it. So one would think that that would extrapolate to that. Um, but if you haven't gotten those, now's the time to get it because we're already leading the nation in new cases and already got a lot of people backed up in the hospital uh, trying to you know get admitted. So that would certainly help out. We're going to go to Peter from Biloxi. Good morning, Peter. Uh, good morning, doctor. I just have a quick question. Uh I'm 77 years old, and for a couple of years I've been dealing with an inguinal hernia on the left-hand side. And you know how those things are. They swell up and they get hard. They go away after you sleep for a while or something. But um, I have sched- I am, I'm getting ready to schedule this surgery. I've already been cleared by my uh, uh, cardio doctor to be off Plavix for about a week. And my question, I guess, is, and they're going to do this laparoscopically. Mm-hmm. And my question is, um, is this a dangerous procedure? Or, And secondly, how long will I have to remain immobile or not walking around or driving or anything like that after the procedure? Yeah. Uh, I hope great. that makes sense. <laughs> oh, definitely. And uh, this is one I know about, and I actually have had this myself. Um, so I sort of know, you know, what to expect with that. So an inguinal hernia is, as you know, it's a little weakness in the abdominal wall down near your groin. And um, it can present itself as a little discomfort or a little bit of a bulge, particularly if you're straining, like you're picking up something heavy, uh, or even if you're just getting out of bed and you're sort of doing the sit-up type thing and you feel a little bulge right there. 
Um, it can uh, have complications with it if loops of bowel sort of get caught in there. Um, and that's in addition to the sort of discomfort that most people have. But it's a very successful surgery. Um, the rates of recurrence tend to be less than 10% over five or 10 years, um, which is pretty, pretty good. Um, it, it tends to be very, it doesn't have much risk at all, in, in other words, and particularly if you're having it laparoscopically. So laparoscopically, they're going to put a couple of really small holes uh, in your abdominal wall, and those are about um, less than an inch long, each one of them, so you'll have two or three. And then they're going to go in there with their little, uh, their, uh, it looks like long tubes, basically, but they can do the whole operation through there. It's a, a better recovery time. It tends to be a, a, about the same length of time that you're under. They do that under general anesthesia, uh, but your recovery is a little bit better, too. Uh, so, uh, I had actually, I've had this twice and, uh, years ago I had it, um, open the, the old fashioned way of doing it. And then, uh, and it was, you know, again, a small incision there. Most recently I had it laparoscopically and it was the robotic laparoscopic and I can't, you know, my experience has been great with that. Um, as far as getting up and getting around, since you're on, you know, anticoagulation, they don't want you on that during surgery. But so they'll have a time period that you're off of that so that that you reduce your risk of bleeding. But generally, they're going to allow you to get around and at least walk day one of the surgery, the the first day that you've had it. So, you know, unless there's other complications to it, and certainly you can have complications with any type of surgery. But this is one that's usually a day surgery unless, again, if you had, you know, some other problems they may want you to stay overnight but most people go home within a couple of hours after having it um oh that's great yeah so even you know age-wise i think i was right around 40 41 when i had my first one and i had my second one last year so it's but you know both times i was walking around uh pretty quickly and it, there is some discomfort with that, but it's something probably that Tylenol could uh, could remedy. Uh, no pun on our show, um, but uh, but yeah, Peter, I, I think that's that's probably going to be a, a minor surgery for you to have with very little complication. Oh, that's great news! I really appreciate your uh, expertise there, Doctor, and you have a great show. It does a lot of good for a lot of people. Thank you. Thank you, Peter, for calling, and uh, we sure do appreciate you listening. We're going to go to James now. Good morning, James. Yeah, good morning, Doctor. <clears throat> I have this recurring uh, sciatic nerve inflammation uh, in my leg, and I haven't had it real bad for a couple years, but it's it's kind of off and on, and I was just wondering what you know about uh, uh, treating sciatic nerve pain. Yeah, yeah. the The sciatic nerve. So it, it, you're right. It is SC, but it, uh, it's uh, it's it's pronounced sciatic. Um, is the is a big bundle of nerve fibers that starts off in your lower back, and then it it sort of right. snakes around the backside of your pelvis, and uh, and it had, goes through a little notch, a little notch in the bone right there, and then it supplies uh, the nerve, the innervation of the lower leg. Um, now, in, in any type of inflammation, any type of irritation or 
um, pressure on that nerve can cause pain. And that pain typically starts, you know, right at where it goes through that notch, because that's the narrowest part that's that's not, you know, that's static, that doesn't change much. And, uh, and then it can go down. It feels like it's going down the leg. Uh, different ways to treat it. You may have already done some of these or all of them, but basically um, sometimes rest alone and trying to figure out what caused this to begin with. Is it something pushing on that nerve that can be relieved? Is it something that... Please. Go ahead. Swinging an axe, cutting firewood. There you go. So, yeah, <laughs> that'll do it. And and uh, sometimes a course of anti-inflammatory medications, and these can be things like ibuprofen, uh, Motrin, Advil. Sometimes people prescribe meloxicam, which is just a long-acting um, um, NSAID, a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory. And I like to use a combination of a short course of that with uh, a muscle relaxer if there aren't any any interactions or complications with other things. And that just relaxes those muscles around that nerve. Um, If that doesn't work, typically I will send people to physical therapy. I um, had really good, uh, r- really good um, responses from both physical therapy, from things like physical therapists that do dry needling uh, or other modalities or pressure point release. Um, and if that doesn't work, then I'm sending them either to an orthopedic surgeon or and or a pain specialist. And uh, you can in the office, anybody, you know, if you're a general practitioner, uh, you can inject um, some steroid in and around that nerve. I don't do that a whole lot. I've, I've sort of moved away from this over the years. And just because of long-term effects of steroids, if getting those three, even three or four times a year can have long-term effects. Um, but, uh, but that is an option if you sort of fail those other things. And uh, they can, uh, you know, and again, there may be some other imaging that they want to do of the lower back. Maybe there's something else pushing on that nerve that's irritating it uh, that they can't that they need to look at with an X-ray or with even with an MRI or CT scan. Um, And then after that, you know, surgery is one of those last things for something like this. And it really does depend more on what's going on. Is it like the, the nerves? are being pushed on by a disc in the back? Is it because there's a bone spur that's uh, sort of uh, pushing on it? So it, it really does uh, depend on that. Long term, every once in a while, I have somebody that's on something like gabapentin, which can help with any type of long-term neuropathy or nerve problems. But generally, for sciatic nerve, it's more of like, and, and you're right, people can have sort of flare-ups of this, but if you if you catch it early, identify it, hit it pretty hard. Uh, most people know sort of the things that work, and their physicians can sort of work with them on a plan to, to come up with that to get better. Yeah, what happened was years and years ago, I blew my back out really bad. Mm. It took forever to heal, but it healed really good. But I knew in my older age it was going to come back to haunt me, and it has. Yeah, so, and, and that, you know, unfortunately, because of the scar tissue that forms and bone spurs and those kinds of things, that can make it worse uh, over time. All right, thank you very much. Yes, sir. Thank you for calling and uh, listening, of course. We're going to go to Jared from Crystal Springs. Good morning, Jared. Good morning. My question is, in the case of an inguinal hernia mm-hmm. in a 94-year-old, which is the greater risk, the risk of the hernia or the risk of sedation in that elderly patient. Oh, that's a, 
Yeah, that's a great question, Jared. So I have a few patients where this has come up. And because inguinal hernias are very common, uh, we've had to weigh this out. And uh, like I, one of my patients wasn't quite as old as that, but I had this, la- I think the last time I had this conversation with somebody, they were about 89. Um, and we were discussing, you know, do we let this go longer? Do we fix it? Or do we just sort of watch it uh, closely over time? I think in that situation, if it's not causing any problems, in other words, if a loop of bowel is not getting uh, entrapped in through that hole, uh, because then you run the risk of, a, of uh, uh, cutting off the blood supply to that, and you can have a bowel perforation, which would be, that would be pretty bad for anybody to have, but uh, particularly for 90, somebody in their 90s, that would be bad. Um, so if it's not causing any problems, I, I would probably feel fine, and I think most surgeons would too, of just watching that. It probably will get bigger over time, but you know, depending on the activity of that patient, if they're out there chopping wood or picking up heavy things, you know, and some 90-year-olds are still able to do those kinds of things, then it's probably going to get bigger and they may have some more problems. But if they're walking around in the house or outside and that's about the limit of what they're doing, then I would say, let, why don't we just watch this? The things to watch out for are uh, a dramatic change in your bowel movement. So if you get sudden pain in the area that you have the the hernia, not like a, just a, a fullness or just a soreness, but a, a sharp pain, uh, vomiting uh, with that, um, unable to, to uh, produce a bowel movement, all of those things are sort of, of, of warning signs that a loop of bowel has gotten entrapped within that hernia. And another thing I would do is I would try to ensure that the stools are formed but loose um, because you don't want, you know, stool backing up. Because that's just, to me, that's just another a risk factor. I don't know that there's ever been any studies on that, but I think it's, you know, just, just thinking it through, that may be a risk factor. Um, of chronic constipation with that. But yeah, I think I'd have to, if that were me or if that were, were one of my family members, I would have the exact same discussion and questions that you have, Jared. I wouldn't just go ahead and operate on them unless it's causing a significant risk. And if they're not having any symptoms besides just the bulging right now, I think that that's, that's a fine thing to do is just to say, hey, let's just wait on this because uh, surgery at anybody in their 90s is uh, of greater risk. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Yes, sir. We talk a lot about risk and benefit uh, ratios. And sometimes, you know, a lot of my patients are like, well, this sounds a little strange. Like you either know or you don't know, right? Well, the answer is we don't always know. And science is always changing on things. Like, well, that's part of what I love about medicine is we don't just decide on one thing and then stick with it for a lifetime or longer than that. Uh, we continue to study and we see what things are better than they used to be. Are there, uh, are there risks that we didn't know about before? And as the science emerges, that's what we follow. But sometimes, just like our last caller, you do have to, to uh, uh, weigh the risk versus the benefit. And um, that can change based on age. That certainly can change based on other medical conditions. Um, you know, any type of surgery, 
that requires general anesthesia where you're being put to sleep for whatever period of time. As you get older, and particularly if you have the risk, if you already have a diagnosis of dementia of any cause, can certainly that could worsen uh, during both during the the time around the surgery, and perhaps in more permanent ways afterwards. So, all those things have to be sort of weighed out if it's you know going to benefit the patient. Whereas if the patient's a 16 year old and they have a hernia and they don't have any other problems, they're going to sail through surgery probably with little or no complication and uh, probably be doing stuff they shouldn't after surgery uh, quicker than uh, than than they should. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, and there's, of course, there are some patients, too, that are sort of hard-headed and don't listen to advice. I'm talking about myself. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning answering your calls and questions about healthcare needs of yourself or someone else that you know. I'm going to go to David from Mobile. Good morning, David. Good morning. What's your question this morning? Okay, I am 71. I have prostate issues. It was hard to urinate. I had a urine lift about five years ago. And after about three years, it, it ran its course. It's just they, it, apparently they're not a real long-lasting procedure. And the doctor has recommended a new procedure. Where he goes in there and he actually cleans out the tube, the urination tube through the prostate. Uh, he says uh, one night in the hospital, and they have to uh, he just clean. He said it grows back, but is a maybe a pint of blood during the process. Uh, let's just want to get your thoughts on it. That's about it. Yeah. I'll pro- hang up and listen. Okay. Sounds good, David. So, yeah, prostate issues as you get older can be a problem, particularly with the ability to urinate, to empty your bladder, just because the you're right that you actually described the anatomy for pretty well there. The, the tube that connects the bladder to the outside of the body uh, in males and females um, is, uh, you know, that that's the way it works. But in males, it's a little bit longer and it goes straight through the prostate. And uh, as the prostate gets bigger, it sort of kinks that off. So if you were thinking about that tube in the same way that you were if you were watering your grass and all of a sudden you grab the tube and you started, uh, you know, pinching it in half <clears throat> or if there was pressure of somebody standing on it, um, that would decrease the flow. And it, it not only decreases the flow, it also prevents the bladder from fully emptying, which is why you can have symptoms like dribbling after you've stopped urinating or if you feel like that you have the urge to uh, go to the bathroom because your bladder still has some urine in it. And there's different ways and procedures. It used to be old procedure was just to go in and just core out the, the prostate. And there's a lot of nerves in that area, uh, particularly for sexual function uh, in males. So if you do that, uh, you do run the risk of, uh, you know, that the old way at least, a uh, risk of damaging a lot of those nerves. And it was a, uh, there's a lot of blood flow through that area because if, if you think about how, uh, all that machinery works. Uh, it's hydraulics. Um, it's a hydraulic system, but uh, that's that's regulated by nerves. But it also the hydraulics aren't water, of course. It's blood. So uh, you need a lot of blood flow to the area. And anytime you do surgery in that area, it's just impossible to have you know to do it cl- clean enough where you don't have any blood loss. So the old procedure, a lot of blood loss, a lot of complications. Newer procedures are really good at minimizing those things. 
So as much as possible, and they can work from the inside rather than going in, you know, used to they'd go in and just take out that prostate, everything, and just sort of peel it off the, the urethra, which is the name of that tube from your bladder to the outside of the body. Now they can do that uh, internally through the tube, uh, and uh, they're pretty good about doing that with a lot of different materials. Uh, sometimes they can do some stents. Sometimes they can do some other things that are uh, don't cause a lot of pain uh, or the, the complications of bleeding. You know, a pint of blood sounds like a lot, and it is, but for that type of procedure, it's probably not as much as it could be. Um, and again, these almost all of them are not permanent. Uh, they do have uh, the uh, complication of um, of the symptoms coming back over time, just because that prostate continues to grow in males as we get older. So, um, you know, I would I would the newer procedures um, they're pretty easy to do. I think for a trained urologist. But I would ask them about their success rate. So everyone's a little bit different and how long they've been doing it. You know, if you if they say, hey, you're the first case, I know somebody has to be first and that that you may be comfortable with that. I might want somebody to do it at least 20 times before, you know, before they really are doing it. it depends on what the surgery is again. Like if it's they may do comparable surgeries. Um, that require the same surgical skills, and this is the first time they've done this particular one. And to me, that's fine because it's it's the same type of skills. Like if you have built uh, a table, if you're a carpenter and you're building a table out of wood, and uh, somebody asks you, well, how many times have you, and you normally use pine or oak uh, wood in doing that, and they say, well, how many times have you used uh, mahogany in doing this. And you say, well, up here, this is the first time, uh, I wouldn't, you know, bat an eye at that because the materials are a little bit different, but the techniques are the same. So those kinds of questions though, I'd ask them. And if they have done a lot of them, like how many complications, what are the complication rates? It sounds like they're quoting that to you already. Um, and I think you just have to sort of weigh those things out. I don't know enough about it to within certainty to say, okay, this is something worth doing for you. Uh, but I do think having those discussions with your surgeon uh, might be helpful to, to sort of tease that out and maybe even looking to see if anybody else has, has had the same thing. I would be very careful with the Internet just because there's a lot of misinformation and false information out there on both sides of things working really, really well and things not working well. So I always like to hear it straight from somebody or a direct quote, but uh, on the internet, you really just can't trust that. And I've seen some things just on Google searches that they're just not, you know, they're just not true. And most of these procedures have been studied before they're approved for use. Um, and complication rates, you know, that may be available to you, too. And, and you can see like the there may have been like uh, a, uh, a uh, course of maybe a, a hundred or so people that are that are tried out on those new things. But that that would be the things that I would say uh, to try to to try to tease out the information you need to make that decision. Uh, Dr. Jimmy, earlier in the show, you mentioned how next week, at least here in central Mississippi, the low temperatures in the teens. And as you said, I think one day maybe the highs might not barely get to 30. So if you could remind us of some of the things to do when it is cold to make sure that we don't put ourselves at risk for some sort of adverse health outcome. 
Yeah, so so cold is a little bit different than heat. And uh, cold, it's it's mainly about tissues having uh, thermal damage, uh, cold damage from those lower temperatures. And it would, I did mention a little bit about people with respiratory conditions, uh, like asthma in particular, that can they can have uh, their asthma provoked to have an asthma episode with a sudden change or, or colder temperatures themselves. And, you know, just wrapping something or a scarf or something like that around your, you know, if you're going outside of the mailbox or if you're going somewhere, making sure you're sort of warmed up. Uh, dressing appropriately is probably the biggest thing. And, um, again, we don't have a whole lot. You know, I'm, I've pulled out a, gone, a long coat that uh, I wear maybe two months out of the year here because we just don't need it. But I know where it is if I need it. Um, uh, extremities uh, are always something that you want to protect um, just because, again, we don't think about that as much. So your feet, your hands, particularly in patients that are diabetic, that may not can feel that as appropriately. We've seen a lot of cold damage from that exposure. Limit your exposure outside. If you're in the wind, shield yourself from it. You can do that with clothing or uh, you can just think about if you're going to be out, uh, not a whole lot of sports going on right now outside. I know a lot of people are doing soccer. If they do play, uh, go ahead and plan appropriately, plan for your kids too. Younger kids, particularly infants and uh, toddlers, are not able to regulate their temperature as well as adults. And the same goes for at the other end of the spectrum for for the elderly. So uh, those individuals will need a lot more attention to make sure that they don't have exposure to those lower temperatures. And really, you know, you can get uh, freezing of tissue even at the surface can be a major, you know, if you think about the thin skin of a 90-year-old, if it gets, uh, if they get frostbite from that, and we certainly could see that next week, then um, that that's tissue death to that area, and they don't heal very well. And you can set up an infection in that in that site um, while that skin's trying to heal. So it's you know it really is something that you want to take uh, seriously. But the biggest thing is plan ahead, see what the temperatures are, dress appropriately, limit your exposure. That's Kevin Farrell with great prompting questions. This is the best question prompter I've ever heard in my entire life. Our producer, Kevin Farrell. You know, I think we we address this as an email, but I had a great email that somebody uh, sent me that was more of a picture with one question. So it was a picture of the U.S. version of Quaker Oats that had strawberries and cream compared to the U.K. version of Quaker Oats So Simple with heaps of fruit. Uh, summer berries is what they called it there. And they have a, a listing of ingredients under both of those. And the U.S. version has whole grain, rolled oats, sugar, creaming agent, whey, sodium, castanate, flavor, colored color pieces, artificial strawberry flavor, and so on. Like a long list of things and additives. The U.K. version has Quaker whole grain, rolled oats, sugar, freeze-dried raspberries, uh, freeze-dried strawberries, natural flavoring. And the question was, why aren't these our standards? Because it does seem like, wow, that's a lot of stuff in that. So country to country, there are different standards of what can be in foods and what can't. And 
particularly when we sort of move to buying and eating local to uh, to you know processing foods and packaging fruit foods so that we could extend their life over uh, a longer shelf life for that. That's the point where we started sort of experimenting back in the, well, really back from the 20s to the 50s, there was a big boom of that with a lot of additives. And a lot of those uh, certainly preserve foods from being spoiled in a lot of ways. Uh, bacteria couldn't grow in it. But we're finding out more and more there's a lot of those, too, that have a lot of deleterious eff- effects to to humans and probably not the best thing to eat. Um, but a lot of that does have to do with how long is that food going to be packaged and how far is it going to travel? And a lot of people are, are you know, proponents of, uh, of doing that more local. And that we have a lot of uh, farm to table uh, options, uh, even within grocery stores. Some of the mainstream grocery stores now I've noticed um, like eggs are a good example. They'll have, um, you know, different options for those eggs. But really it comes down to the standards set down by the country. And back in the 40s and 50s, um, these were some of the standards that, you know, were in place. And a lot of this was through the military, too. In World War Two. you know, one of the things they learned from World War One is like, well, you got to feed your troops. You got to keep them healthy. So some of the health issues were because of spoilage of food uh, and transporting that for long periods of time across uh, across some of the lines, uh, the the enemy are through enemy lines and, and having to control those kinds of things led to a lot of the experiments about how can we put things in a package that might could last months and not spoil and still have some nutritional aspects to it. Uh, but I think a lot of that has sort of carried over through the years. It is when you look at both of those comparisons and I did double check that, by the way, I didn't just uh, say, Oh, well, somebody just sent that. Um, I do think a lot of that does have to do with, with things that have happened 30 or 40 years ago. And, We've sort of propped ourselves up in a lot of ways to continue those things. We've got a lot of people waiting, so we're going to jump right to it. We're going to go to John from Macomb. Good morning, John. Um, 81, 80-year-old male. Um, I do home blood pressure, and uh, a couple of years ago, my primary care physician uh, said the blood pressure readings have changed and said I'm hypertensive or whatever it's called. Um, my concern is, uh, my blood pressure readings are jumping all over the place at times. Uh, typically it's less than 140 over something in the sixties, but, um, sometimes it's up around 170 or so. Um, the blood pressure cuff directions show that it should be about an inch, inch and a half above the elbow. And I'm concerned maybe I'm not placing the blood cuff in the correct position, and that's causing the higher readings. Your thoughts? Yeah, that's an excellent question, and it's totally true. So um, a lot of my patients, almost all my patients, we use home blood pressures to help see what the blood pressure control rates are. 
and it can uh, it can vary dramatically. Like you can have what you just described as a twenty you know twenty point increase in your blood pressure if the cuff size either it's not positioned correctly. Uh, there has to be you know ideally you should be sitting for five minutes, feet flat on the floor, back supported, not eating or drinking or talking during the blood pressure reading. And I tell them to take it you know twice in a row with a minute in between and then take the average of that. But you're right, that cuff, it doesn't need to be over the elbow. It's measuring the artery above that point. And there should be on most cuffs a little indicator about where that needs to be on your arm. In other words, the artery is on the front part of your arm, not the back part. So the little, the little, uh, there should be like an arrow. It usually says middle of the arm right here. And if you have questions, um, most of the time a pharmacist or your physician, you can take that device with you to your visit and then they can sort of verify that you're using it correctly. But I would do that first and then start to track those again to see if you're still getting that variability. Thank you. Sounds good. Yes, sir. Thank you for calling. All right. We're going to go to, I believe, William from Starkville. Good morning, William. Good morning. Um, I've got two questions. I better hurry. Uh, I have uh, have a obstruction, um, uh, 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 blood flow obstruction at my probably at my knee. On Friday, they measured the uh, the the uh, uh, Doppler flow uh, system for the vein. Yesterday, they checked the artery and found that there's no pulse at the uh, at the popliteal there on the back of the knee. Got it. And so I'm I've had great all weekend. I had severe uh, pain all weekend, and I, of course I couldn't get anything done. I can't get a hold of the specialist on the weekend. Uh, I wanted to know since I'm waiting to see a specialist, a vascular specialist now, a vascular surgeon, whether moving around. Uh, uh, it's it, as much as I can without without pain. It's it's improved a lot. Last night I got a first night's sleep. Whether movement around will help uh, circulation uh, in the lower leg. Um, it's it's actually, actually the my the muscle the uh, anterior tibialis is a is uh, uh, critically inflamed and tender. And I just wondered if moving around. It, uh, as much as I can, I can't go out and walk, but I, where the moving will help stimulate circulation, as leg movement assists the return circulation from the lower extremities. Yeah, so so movement it does sort of dilate those arteries, uh, but it doesn't. The last thing that you said it, that's not really an issue. It sounds like so if your veins were fine, it's not that the blood's not getting back to your heart appropriately. And that that does depend upon muscle movement. It's more that the arteries carrying blood to those muscles in your lower leg, which is what's causing yeah. the pain, they're blocked off. So it may help a little bit. It's going to help a lot on the backside because what they're probably going to offer you is a stent of that lower extremity of the artery. And that's sure. the same kind of stents that they do in the, in the heart. A lot of experience with this. Uh, tends to be very successful. You probably are going to be on some blood thinners of some type after that, at least for a while. But that can help dramatically. And the exercise after that, um, that can help with with the pain. Okay, that sounds good. And, oh, 
Oh, I've forgotten the second question now, so but maybe we're out of time anyway. Well, it, yeah, you can think about it. Call back later when we're when we're back on, or you can uh, you know send us an email. But uh, William, oh, yeah. I'm going to do that. Yeah. Okay. okay thank, Th- you. thank you for calling. We got one more person we're going to squeeze in in one minute. I think Brandon from Biloxi. Good morning, Brandon. Hey, how you doing? Good. So um, I had a comment about the uh, gentleman earlier that was asking about prostate procedures. And um, I just wanted to kind of give a little info to the listeners. Um, I'm a registered nurse, and I've been working with an interventional radiologist for the past five years. Um, one, of, one of the interventional radiologists in the group has been doing uh, this procedure called a prostate artery embolization, where you go in through an artery in the left wrist, the left radial artery, uh, just like a heart cap would be. Um, but you go down to the prostate and deposit these little endospheres or beads that basically create little islands of bed tissue in the prostate that then cause a feedback mechanism to um, allow the prostate to shrink itself uh, through hormonal changes. And, um, you know, we've been seeing a lot of really good success with, with minimal, if any, complications. Um, so I just... Uh, oh, oh, did we lose you there, Brandon? Yeah. Uh, moderate sedation. Right, and, uh, right. It, it's good. Yeah, that's a that's a good thing to bring up, and I appreciate you doing that. I have heard of our interventional radiologists doing something similar in the past, um, and for the right patients that are sort of selected, I think that's another option too. So we do appreciate you giving that info to us. Um, it's always good to get uh, to get info like that. And like I said, I'm not an expert in this area. I usually see patients before and after that, but that is there are other. Uh, alternatives for patients that you know that aren't don't really fit the right criteria for surgery that you can minimize some of those effects, which I think Brandon was touching on, uh, and might uh, get a good uh, get a good response from that. Well, that's about all the time we have for today. Thank you all of you for calling. Uh, man, great day today with lots of information. Southern Remedy is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio and is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at UMMC. Southern Remedy is produced by Kevin Farrell and the podcast producer is Abram Nanny. You can tune in to MPB Think Radio every weekday morning at 11 for the full Southern Remedy lineup. This is an M- MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.